0: Welcome to IOM 3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Materials People, the podcast where we bring together practitioners across arts, science, design, and engineering to talk about the materials that we love. Today, I am joined by Professor Marcus J. Bueller and by Marshall Chaudhry. I'm so excited to speak with them today about silk. Hello, guys. Hi.
2: Hi. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you. So as we do here on the channel, we're going to do our intros of our guests. So first off, we have Marshall. Marshall Chaudhry is a UK-based mixed-media textile artist, values-led designer, and social entrepreneur from Karachi, Pakistan. She studied science, technology, and international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. She then cultivated a range of international experiences from humanitarian nonprofits to educational enterprises, from transitioning corporate entities to luxury garment production, and more. Marshall attended the Royal College of Art, completing her master's in textiles and initiating a circular textile practice. Marshall's inquiries center around knowledge and the nature of knowing. More recently, she has circled around the question of what it means to make a relation. Chodri examines making as an investigative act. As a practitioner, she often uses a textile or material artifact as a starting point, an apt vehicle, a receptacle, a holder. A textile process is a way of seeking insight, for quieting the discursive mind, finding flow, and letting another intelligence emerge. She investigates these ideas through making, movement, and sitting meditation practices. In her recent making, Marshall explored relation through silk, returning to Karachi, engaging with the material, with tools, with place, and with their connection to intimate relations. Craft-based processes allow her to gather insight and make relations with self-placed creatures and matter. Marshall's research travels readily between lived experiences of women in her family and craft practices of South Asia. Her engagement with history is bodily and ongoing. Processes combine to give insight about the nature of living, relating, and being in the body. Histories are shown to be non-textual, bodily, carried, and held. Outcomes are incidental, and no one piece can claim to be the hero of the story. Service runs at the heart of Marshall's work. She digs deep to tell meaningful stories, working closely with people to align spirit and purpose towards a heartfelt goal. She currently leverages her expertise to embark on design research and provide insight within the circular economy space. So excited for you guys to hear from her today. (laughs) And of course, we have Marcus. Uh, Marcus J. Bueller is the McAfee Professor of Engineering at MIT and directs MIT's laboratory for atomistic and molecular mechanics. He served as head of department, civil and environmental engineering from 2013 to 2020. From 2018 to 2020, he served terms as president-elect, president, and past president of the Society of Engineering Science. Bueller's research focuses on how protein materials define life and how they feel catastrophically due to disease. His work has shown how biological materials achieve extraordinary properties through multi-scale hierarchy, rather than through the diversity of the underlying building blocks, and has designed lighter, stronger, and durable materials. Working at the interface of art and science, he is a composer of experimental music with an interest in sonification and developed a method to translate material structure into musical form and vice versa, realizing a materialization of sonic information in design. He is well known for the development of the immaterial musical compositional technique. His scholarly work includes more than 500 peer-reviewed journal articles in journals like Nature, Nature Materials, Science Advances, PNAS, Advanced Materials, and others with about thirty-eight thousand citations. Bueller has delivered hundreds of plenary and keynote speeches around the world. Bueller received the NSF Career Award, the United States Air Force Young Investigator Award, the Navy Young Investigator Award, and the DARPA Young Faculty Award, as well as a Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. In 2010, he received MIT's Harold E. Edgerton Faculty Achievement Award for exceptional distinction in teaching and in research or scholarship. Other awards include the TMS Hardy Award, the IEEE Home Conference Mort Anther Lecture Award, the MRS Outstanding Young Investigator Award, the SES Young Investigator Medal, the TJR Hughes Young Investigator Award, the Nemat Nasser Medal, the R.W. Raymond Memorial Award, the Brunner Award, the Alfred Nobel Prize, and the Leonardo da Vinci Award. Mr. Buehler is a very, very accomplished man with many, 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 many accolades. Um, He was selected as a 2018 highly cited researcher for producing multiple highly cited papers ranking in the top 1% for publication field. In 2019, he received the materials Horizons Outstanding Paper Prize by the Royal Society of Chemistry and was named as one of the top 0.09% of researchers worldwide in nanoscience in 2020's World Ranking of Scientists by Stanford University. He serves as a member of the editorial board of many international publications and has chaired many committees. It is an absolute honor to have you both here today. Thank you so much for joining. <laughs> thank you so much, Catherine.
2: Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the for the very, very kind introductions. And I'm honored <laughs> to be here with Michelle. It's and you know it's it's gonna be a great conversation, I think.
1: I think so. So as we start each episode, we are curious. How did you get here? What, what drew you to Silk? Can you Now we've heard like the official side of, of where you got to where you are. Take us through that story. Who wants, who wants to start?
3: So I think for me, it was kind of by accident, just right at the beginning of the pandemic at the Royal College of Art when I was doing my master's. We had a brief. Uh, it was like a context brief. And the idea was to survey one material or one fiber, just any one. You could use pretty much whatever you liked. And the idea was to present a uh, kind of an intensive but short piece of research on this, on this material, I think over a period of about three to four months. I chose silk. Um, really, I think it, my decision was emotional and aesthetic to begin with. Emotional because, um, you know, lifelong, I've seen women in my family, my elders wear silk at occasions of importance, at ceremonies, it's passed down. Um, so it's kind of like a heritage textile for us. And I was really thinking of it as a textile, as a kind of a finished textile and aesthetic because I just I've, I've always loved um, particularly raw silk. And so it was such a kind of a spur of the moment decision to to go into it. When I went into it and I realized and still not fully realized what silk production is like, what the history of it is, um, you know, it. it it really felt like i had my whole life been unwittingly looking at one aspect one finished component of a process that's you know 5000 years old and it was it was incredibly eye opening uh, I will say that it's not that I only work with silk now. That's that's definitely not the case. But my approach to silk or my learnings about silk at that time profoundly transformed how I relate to materials thereafter. Because as I delved into the, the history of it, I realized it's a history of commerce. Uh, it's a domesticated, you know, for example, I was looking at the silkworm, the domesticated silkworm. It was such a uh, human interaction story of kind of these global proportions. It was almost very, very hard to relate uh, to a process that's so old and so well honed, this domestication. Mm -hmm. And I found myself wanting to connect more to the silkworm. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the life of a silkworm, like what is the internal experience like what is it like to be so domesticated that you lost all your color you can't fly anymore you're really just producing this one very beautiful thing um, and at the time because I was so used to approaching things from a human point of view it almost seemed silly and laughable to kind of go into it with this perspective but it really turned out to be you know kind of the least silly thing it became a much more for me a gentler more ecological and more nurturing point of view that I carry forward into my practice even now it shaped even now you know the things that Kat said where I have a meditation practice or I try to relate to materials I try to relate to myself or to other people it was really through silk that I started to explore processes um, to do so sorry Kat I've talked for so long that I've (laughs) I've kind of lost so I should stop (laughs) I should pause
1: (laughs) Not at all, not at all. Thank you for for taking us on this journey. So it seems <laughs> silk was 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 kind of a vehicle to to deeper learning and to really accessing a kind of different part of your practice, really honing in Yeah,
3: There's- 100%. I will mention one thing that, you know, my epistemic traditions, growing up, the way that I uh sought knowledge or 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 what I thought was important about knowledge seeking. It was always ideas that were cartesian, quite rational, uh well articulated, it was very important to me to learn something and then to present it, to advocate for it. And when I started to explore silk, silkworm, through the vehicle of silk spinning, I I, I started to acquire um, silk roving, kind of raw silk, and started to spin it into yarn myself. Through this process, I realized that I was trying to, or or unwittingly, I was going into a more intrinsic, relating to a material that is less rational possibly, but for whatever reason resulted in a lot more empathy for creatures and for fibers um mm. and that was very unexpected for me so that was you know incredibly exciting
1: thank you for sharing that vashal thank you very much now marcus please how how did you end up with with proteins and silk
2: yeah i know it's good and fascinating um background michelle um you know relates in some ways to a lot of the things i i have also experienced but so let me start yeah so i i study um really the the way materials are, are made you know any any kind of material you know, you can imagine that's made from atoms and molecules and so that's my my work you know deals with predicting and understanding how things become what they are from their building blocks and i you know over the years i've worked with lots of different materials metals ceramics um, and then you know when i started here at mit built my lab here i uh, became really interested in, in framing it around biological materials and bioinspiration for applications and technologies but also in you know creating more sustainable material solutions and i'll maybe talk more about that later but so we really you know wanted to study how living systems as humans or animals um how they how they're built you know how their materials emerge and how they're um create their functions and so so silk for actually is is sort of a material interesting for a lot of different reasons one of them is that it's remarkable you know as as much you said you know humans have used it um in our civilizations for you know thousands of years maybe longer probably longer and and um but and the reason is that it's it's remarkably strong and resilient and we can kind of shape it in the way we want and as you you said quite beautifully we can even domesticate some of those animals that make silk and 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 we have done that and and utilize it because nature gives us a really powerful platform to work from so 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 there's something there um, in terms of what we do we do mechanical properties and stability so we're looking at this amazing material uh silk but also spider silk in particular is very strong actually has a strength that exceeds that of some steels you know even though it's made from essentially water and protein right so so very very simplistic principle of building materials but extremely you know effective and and that's one reason the other one is that as we are interested in understanding how living systems and how nature creates Material, mm-hmm. um, we needed model systems. As scientists, we we're gonna need something we can actually study and understand. You know, a lot of, a lot of materials built by, like, let's look at our organism. Um, you know, are so compl- complex that it's very very difficult to really understand fundamentally what's actually going on. You know, this. If you look at a human cell or animal cells, they are complicated. So, long story short, silk is great because it's made by an animal, an insect, and it's produced extra organismally. In other words, it's made outside the organism. So it's actually separate and, and you can study it much more easily. Right? And so unlike birds that built, you know, maybe a nest from other materials, by the way, they also use some sort of glue, which is related to silk. Some bird um, species actually do that. But but most of the animals like birds and other um, mammals, you know, they, they use materials from the environment to do things. But of course, spiders and insects, um, you know, silk silkworms and other insects, they use silk. And that's a fascinating subject of study then you, you have a very clean material system you can work with um and so that's how we really got into it in the beginning almost almost 20 years ago 18 years ago so when I moved here and um you know I came from Caltech where i had studied chemical engineering chemistry and and modeling and so you know moved into this really complex field and silk was sort of a, a great system to begin with and you know over the years and I'll, I'll try to keep it to a brief but um you know we studied uh, all the all the aspects you might could imagine, you know the, the structure identifying what's actually the structure of silk. you know we didn't know this um, because you can't really take a microscope and look at it, right It's so small, molecular scale, you're dealing with individual atoms and molecules. And what's interesting in nature and I, I think that's maybe there's a relation here to what Michelle talked about. you know when you look at a material that humans make like metals and ceramics, they're they're largely very organized and ordered and structured right like they, they kind of form crystals a lot of times. And, and and of course we use other materials like glass, but a lot of the stuff we build is very organized and, and, and made and you know human made essentially. Um silk is very messy. So you know when you when you look at a microscope you take a microscope and because it is so messy and disorder disordered, disordered um, even if you have microscopes that might work for, let's say, metals and ceramics, they're not going to work for something like silk. You know, silk is wiggly. It's almost like it wants to escape our observation idea. You want to look at it, but actually you can't see it because it's continuously changing shape. You know, it's moving around in space. And so we we needed to do some work there and we did some work and understanding the structure, build models. I do a lot of computational work, so we kind of think, well, how can we build models of something so complicated we can't see? Can we use computer simulations to help do that? And we did that, and then we started working a lot with um, also experimental uh, collaborators, uh, including David Kaplan, who's a very very close collaborator of mine, and at Tufts, close to him, actually physically close, and, and a couple of miles away from MIT. So we built a, a group, you know, kind of me and David that do both computational and experimental work on silk. And you know, we've studied molecular structure. As I said, we moved on to the structure of webs. You know, and I think it was eleven or 12 we began to look at how the uh, spider web uh, might relate to its molecular structure. We had an article in Nature at the time um, for the first time explaining why spider webs um, are so resilient and how that relates to the molecular design, which also is encoded by DNA. Um, and then we moved on into uh, not just orb webs, two-dimensional webs, to three-dimensional webs. Started a collaboration with Tomas Saracino, who you might, might know. Uh, both of you might know him. And yeah, you know, Tomas and I worked together for many years uh, until today on three-dimensional spider webs. And so we began to build um, models of webs and um, you know, if structure and again relate this back to the molecular scales. We've sort of gone through that. And we also worked on making synthetic silks, right? So so and and, and then we've made this both for spider silks, but also uh, silkworm silks, which is the ones you work with. Um those are actually much easier to work with and 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 handle and and make. But we can make synthetic silks in the lab, you know, we can study exactly how positioning different atoms relates to its properties at the macro level. And those are the kinds of things we've done. And then we've also I've also had, as um, you know, you mentioned in the introduction, long an interest in relating uh, music, sound and materials and, and of course this whole intersection between how things look like and how they feel as material and how they would sound like and how principles of design between these different manifestations could relate to one another and whether you can use this to understand the world better. Um, So I've done a lot of work on that as well, creating um, musical instruments from spider webs to actually um, creating, you know, looking at the vibrations at the molecular scale and making them audible for, for humans to hear and actually understand the folding of these proteins which make up silk, of course, and then many other biomaterials you know, how that, how that can be made audible. And that creates lots of opportunities uh, from an artistic point of view as well. So, you know, you can, uh, you know, think about creating music from the principles that you see in silk and kind of mix your human creativity, nature's creativity through evolution and and create some really interesting new ways in, in imagining sound. So I'm going to stop here, but that's my, my journey. <laughs> and it, it, it's a passion, you know, we do, uh, this is actually for, Understanding biological materials, like I mentioned, you know, we we want to think about a future where we we don't have to rely on on using all this energy. Because if you make steel and concrete, you know, the kind of materials that we usually use as engineers, they're very expensive energetically, take lots of resources, not just mining them, but also making the material with lots of emissions and pollution. So we look to nature like that little spider or that insect worm and say, wow, you know, this insect can actually create a cable has the strength of steel but all it does it eats flies right and and so we we do that here i didn't mention is that we have a bunch of spiders here in the lab at mit and we you know we we grow webs here and study them but it's a absolutely fascinating point of you know transformation for materials science point of view and engineering point of view take the fly and make a spider web out of that and why does it happen i mean we we have no idea right so so that's something that's really fascinating
1: This is. Super interesting. I I think one thing I find really interesting in your kind of two approaches is this idea of the unknown and kind of building, building on a history and then trying to forge like, well, what does this mean now? What's the scope for the for the future? How can you start to relate to this as your own kind of passion, as your own kind of practice? Just super interesting. Lots of branches of research there. Well, yeah. Masha, you look like you, you wanted to say something then.
3: No, I'm just I'm really blown away. I like loved hearing about your research, Marcus. And I can't um I don't know where to begin. I have so many questions. Should I leave
1: them till the end? <laughs> no, no, no. Feel free to interject because we're just gonna keep going, you know? <laughs> um,
2: one one thing I wanted to maybe add, uh, you know, following one of the things you mentioned, the weaving, right? And and I and that's something that's really fascinating. Um you know, because When we make materials typically we program machines to do that right or you know or factories you know things like this and of course in nature you have the self-organization at the molecular level the folding but also the organization of this animal going out there and producing whatever you know it wants to produce like a spider web or cocoon or or there are many other actually insects that make silks of course right for different purposes but and and that process of how structure emerges and how that's programmed into the organism is that fascinating you know i have the slide when i give talks you know where i show the different time scales you have the time scale of a few days and in, by in, during which the spider web is built so, you know if you have a spider web it takes a few days to build but you also have the evolutionary time scales of billions of years where you know these these creatures are programmed or evolved to make certain kinds of things and you know we as humans um and I, I really resonated with what you said about the human perspective, you know, when we, when we built, um you know, you know with Tomás art installations, and, and looked at spider webs, and, and mm-hmm. we, we made these gigantic, and Tomás actually started this, making these gigantic installations of spider webs, you could walk into, and then we, we built some stuff performances here at MIT as well with music, and, you know, you become, we're trying to yet you th- to see how it would be like to be a spider. And, mm-hmm. and actually, you begin to see that, yeah, this world you're in, you know, the, the vibrations, the sounds you're going to hear are are not human-like. And you realize, hopefully, that's, um that, you know, you're just part of the story, but you're not yeah. necessarily the centerpiece of the story. And and there's yeah. the star is the spider here, or the, you know, the insect. And yeah, as I as that, it very strongly. And it's one of the Teachable moments. We always try to convey, actually, in, in the work we do, because um, many times engineers, humans are very self-centered. They, they <laughs> we can invent anything, and we can. We're very smart as a species, but <laughs> we, you know, we have to see ourselves as part of the larger ecosystem, and you know, and 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 really respect nature. And I think yeah. you know that's something very important. Yeah,
3: I, you know, I completely agree. I was reading this article the other day. Um, it was about how trying to address climate change is not going to solve the disaster that's happening to biodiversity right now. Mm. And it's mainly because the view that humans have towards climate change is one that's very commercial, one that's kind of industry driven. And if we just solve this one problem, the whole world is going to be okay, but actually biodiversity would be um, you know, um, better addressed through a more humble view of ourselves in this world. And I just, you know, that resonated so strongly. And of course, we hear it now all the time. It's really a part of the discourse. But, you know, from a practice point of view, you know, I will say that it seems like such a small thing to stop viewing silk as a fabric, as a textile, as a thing that I have, that I acquire, or even something that's very precious and important to me. A shift from viewing it like that to an actual entire ecosystem of processes that are taking place of which you have not interfered but you have essentially co-opted for five thousand years to mm-hmm. do a certain kind of a thing and um i don't know i do think that there is some work that we need to do on how we view ourselves um a bit of introspection
2: <laughs> yeah and <laughs> actually
3: spider webs are going to help with that i really you know
2: yeah yeah no i mean actually and one of the things i see when we when we st- we study you know the formation of the webs right how the you know we, we basically monitor the spider building the web and one of the things you see is this connectedness that's emerging, right? So, so following in you know, what you said, right? So you have this, you know, binary state kind of where You're saying, well, you know, it's my piece of silk, and I'm going to do this with that. So, yeah. uh, the silk actually is a fabric, right? But it's also by itself. You know, the web, for example, you know, is, is a is an emerging structure that creates connections. That's how the spider actually observes yeah. its world. You know, it's not a, it's um, it's a subject that it creates. You know, to to catch prey and to, to do other things, yeah. but. Um, but yeah, it's, it's this making of connections. I think it's extremely interesting. It's living material. I mean, that's something that I'm very fascinated by. It, it, it's, a, it's not a static subject, right? That's mm-hmm. that's made and then you study it. It's this evolution of time um, of structure over time that yeah. um, and its connection. Yeah, I, that's why I always I've always been drawn to these weaving um, practices actually because they they really focus on that. I mean, we don't really focus on that as much in the engineering. Right. Unless you're a textile engineer, probably then. But uh, a lot of times we we just look at the material that's been made and then we study it. But the, right. the process, I'm really fascinated with what you're doing there because it it is really in the in the natural form of what silk is. It, it right. has a special component with respect to that.
3: That's you know that's so fascinating, Marcus. And I will say one thing that um, as a layperson, as a person who's not a scientist and who does not appreciate the magnitude of beauty that's really taking place in the structures that you're describing, as somebody who can't really imagine that on a daily basis, I will, you know, I, I would guess, for me, at least through my personal experience, that participating in these very slow processes that are almost antiquated, you know, like, for example, spinning, hand spinning, silk, for example, when I was doing it, I was, uh, you know, one of the only people in my year that was doing it at the time, it wasn't exactly a desirable thing to be done. People were like, what's the point, right? Right. I will say that participating in a slow process like spinning or like hand weaving, I don't know, if there is something about the slowness and the setting your mind, bringing your mind into the present, trying to arrange these structures that are not intuitive. They're actually very ordered and our brains don't make them just like, you know, snapping my fingers. They don't make them just like that. So really concentrating and coming into your body in order to do those things i don't know for me my guess and i might be able to better articulate this in 10 or 20 years but my guess is that it builds a kind of an empathy or a kind of a connection with you know there's something bigger than me here i'm mm-hmm. just a small part i'm just you know laying one thread at a time or or or, or spinning one tuft at a time
2: yeah yeah well no yeah. exactly and and i want to say also that you know the the physical i mean you know, some of your questions uh Catherine, you were, you had in the um that <laughs> you mentioned right you know where about how do you deal with this material, you know? And, and that's one of the things that I, I wanna say as a science perspective, yeah, you know, we if we have that spider and wanna do the experiment, we cannot tell the spider, make the web today, right? Sometimes we have to wait for weeks and sometimes it happens right away, you know, it depends on lots of different things. Um, you know, there's some patience you have to have in working not just with spiders and insects, but you know, any any animal really, but any kind of living system. but it's something that in um in a sciences, you know it's you know it's not always there, right? A lot of times if you're a chemist, you can start your reaction any time of the day, and it will always happen if you're a computational person, same thing. So working with real um you know these kind of, and I think um silkworms are a little bit easier to work with. you know, they've been yeah. like I said, you know evolved by humans, I guess, or pressured to become in in a certain way, you know becoming really uh, domesticated um producers of this stuff but spiders are very very uh, independent thinkers (laughs) right (laughs) and so that's something we struggle with and and if you were to talk to my students that work with them you know on a daily basis yeah that's a uh, that's definitely a very unique experience.
3: Can I ask a question Marcus? Uh, Sorry you had mentioned that the structures of the spider silk is wiggly it's kind of out of control hard to contain when you guys try to synthetically make it, do you follow those principles, or do you follow those kind of human ordered frameworks that you you're also talking about?
2: Yeah, well, so this is a very interesting question. So when you when you make silk, you know, in the lab or when the spider makes it, you know, you you essentially create nanoscopic structures, and they have like I, I liked what you said. He said there, the, you know, the I think said something the immense beauty, and it, it really is an, an incredible uh, space. You know, it's like the the amount of space you have between these molecules, the atoms you create and the kind of thing you see with your eyes, it's it's many orders of magnitude. It's like the space between here and the moon. If you kind of imagine this, this the kind of um, architecture you can build, we only scratching the surface. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, once you, when you create things at that level, a nanoscale, um, you know, you follow different rules and laws physically than what you, when you have a rope at the macro level, right? So, so there is sort of an innate, um, randomness at the quantum level or molecular level that, that we follow. So so that's something that's built in. And so when we make it synthetically, we, we have part of that comes just from the physics, you know, that we're dealing with very, very tiny objects. But you are right, I mean there are certain processes as we go to larger scales where the human intuition will tell us, yeah, human experience, I should say, you know, yeah, we're gonna make this in that way. We're gonna make it very organized and ordered. But nature says, oh, "Well, not so, not so fast." You know, like literally, yeah, we we gotta we gotta assemble these structures in a particular pattern that might not be intuitive. And and you're totally right. You know that that is something that we have to account for uh, when we do want to make it in the laboratory. And and that's part of the really interesting charm, I think, this area of research has because it it really challenges a lot of the paradigms. Like engineers make things very strong and perfect. Nature makes things like. Imperfect, actually, and and a lot of the, the 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 resilience that we have and the properties that emerge come from what we call defects, so imperfections that are that are built in and actually make the material better. And, and engineers have a whole big deal to learn from that. Actually, that we we were avoiding defects at great cost. We basically use a lot of energy to make things that do not have defects or very little defects. Nature. Chooses a very different path, and here's the thing that I think is very exciting. Like I said earlier about sustainability, where you know we're, we're going to be able to learn from that, and and I, I imagine this future world where we 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 think a little bit more like the um, or, or create things a little bit more in the, in that sense.
1: I think there's something so beautiful to be said about silk as like a as a symbol of time, and and as like a almost like this placeholder of time, and then also this kind of statement about uniqueness and the I guess that balance of our desire to have things a certain way and the kind of natural flow that things inevitably take, I think it feels very philosophical. Like silk is a philosophical material. It's not just this thing that you hold uh, in your hands. And I'm I'm quite curious to kind of understand from both your perspectives, like what what do you think, how would you describe the perception of silk, you know, up until this point? Maybe you can speak from your own kind of personal experience. What was your perception of silk before you began working with it versus now.
2: So, I mean, I can I can say a few things. Um, but you know, one of the things it's a yeah, it, it definitely has it has sort of a um, this long you know time, you know, the stability over time that like you mentioned is the sort of an anchoring point for. You know, if you look at a lot of materials, you know that that especially human made materials are changing all the time. You know, every couple of decades we have a new material. And of course, in the history of the world, that's very very quick. So we make them, we discover they're not that good, actually. They're pollutants, you know, we change them up. And yeah, like you said nicely, I mean, silk so is this, this almost like a constant that's been around for billions of years. And when you study it, and I have, um, it's almost like, I mean, I, I love proteins, and and those, those, because those are the materials nature chooses to make lots of stuff that's alive, but you, you have a lot of respect for that, and, and I think if you, you study something like silk, and you, you know, un, unlock the mysteries, and you look at the sequences, and those, those sequences, like we made into music, too, are, are things that have evolved, yeah, over billions of years, and, and you, when you see them for the first time, and you see the structure, the ones in molecular structure, you can see with your eyes, you can see them with a the, this theory or the computational methods or very accurate microscopes, um, its like entering a whole new world, and and it's it's a little bit, I mean, you know, in a, it is sort of the the thing that scientists get excited about that because they see something for the very first time, and, and of course, as we said earlier, humans have seen it for the first time. You know, it's been around for a long time, but yeah, it's, it's very special in that sense. And it, I did not, I mean, you know, I usually we we have certain, you know, runway and what can do with things you know like you study a, to- a topic for a few years and then you kind of exhaust it Yeah. Um, all of us, the silk you know we're really just at the beginning and it, it's um it's a it's a gift that keeps on giving you know in terms of new questions and new opportunities it, it, but we, we yeah we have to be respectful of that system i mean we're very you know cautious about handling it literally and and in that sort of philosophical sense
1: what, what do you think, Masha? What would you say, how would you say your perception has changed? And what would you say like the histories of this material?
3: I think I alluded earlier probably that before I started to work with it, I probably saw it at a certain scale and from a certain perspective. So, you know, my height in my hands, holding, acquiring, possessing um, a completed product Uh, an inanimate kind of an object that's really mine or anybody else's to do with as they please and and that was kind of the perspective and scale with which I viewed it Mm -hmm. when I started to look at the history and I was overwhelmed really by the socioeconomic history of silk I started to try to find ways in like how can I get in like how can I now intimately connect to this to this fiber or to this um, to this material I you know interestingly you guys were talking about time, um, you know, I, I like. I was looking back and forth in time. I was looking at different parts of the supply chain. I was looking at different parts of the history, trying to see where can I come in? Where can this resonate? How can I relate? And I think, you know, my clumsy kind of relation with it, which, which I'm very glad for, because as I said, it profoundly changed my life. Um, my clumsy relation uh, to it was through getting some raw silk roving, and just starting to spin it for hours and hours, and when you spin something for hours and hours, essentially, it's like taking a piece of cotton in your in your fingertips um, and maintaining a certain tension and feeding it into a spinning wheel. And Catherine, you know, I, I'm sure you saw me plenty of times with the RCA. You're just doing it for hours and hours, and your whole body then gets involved in it. You're rocking back and forth. You're maintaining this tension and maintaining this constant kind of relationship with it. And if you if you if you pinch too hard or if you kind of you know. Um, mess up the tension the the tuft leaves your hands the the wheel goes flying um, and the kind of the thread is lost right Mm -hmm. and it's uh, for me in maintaining that tension and keeping my body just so I started to kind of taste and feel and hear the silk with like a different part of my body which was my fingers and I never you know before interacting in this way I never thought I could taste something through my fingers, or I could hear the sound that it makes, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does sound kind of otherworldly or like irrational in a way. But I do think when you get into those states, you can have a different perception, you can start to perceive through your other senses as well. So yeah, you know, to answer your question, I think the scale, the perspective, you know, my whole kind of uh, image of it has completely changed. It became a completely embodied experience.
1: I think there's something to be said that the, the material as a whole kind of takes on these grandiose proportions. Like first you see it as like, this is a thing. Like it's it's a thing that you can pass down. It's a thing of beauty, but to kind of dig into it and realize, oh wow, the scale of this thing is so much more. There's so many hands that touch it. There's so many parts to the process and then becoming very intimately um associated with it where now you are the person who is in a sense creating the thing but i mean mm-hmm. it's not really towards a thing but it's it's how 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 can you manipulate it mm-hmm. i think that that opens an kind of interesting an interesting conversation between like how easy it is to disassociate from just how much it takes mm-hmm. to bring something to life you know especially yeah. materials i think it's something that we often take for granted and it's becoming a bit more of a conversation now. But I think silk is a really interesting testament to that because so much of it has been, you know, impacted by time. I mean, the cultivation, the, the evolution of the animals, the cultivation of the animals, the, like the, the different stages of growing and, and cleaning and, and spinning and weaving and all these different processes, you know, that, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of hands, a lot of time, but there's that really intimate experience of working with it one to one.
3: And can I add something to that, Catherine? I I think, you know, Marcus said it very eloquently before. It's when the spider is independent, you have to then treat it as a collaborator. You can't, it's not your product. It's not just going to do what you want. And he was absolutely right. You know, with silkworms uh, or yeah, well, silkworms that then become moths, they don't do anything else now because of 5,000 years of domestication. They can't even mate on their own. We help them to mate with each other. Um, And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's this idea of kind of looking at it as a collaborator, you know, and, and, and can that idea be taken to, for example, agriculture or um, other, other aspects in our lives where we colonize things versus collaborate or work with them? Just the thought.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. Um, You know, this, what you described about the, the, you know, the, the, the patience and the, and the relationship (laughs) in your weaving process. And it's, Kind of reminds me a little bit off of the scientific process as well. You know, when you when you study silk, you there's no shortcut. As we were talking about you know, there's no shortcut. You can't just go in and say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on silk now and you know publish a paper. And that's you really have to do the work. You know, over many years and you know cr- keep the tension alive. You know, <laughs> pulling the you know pulling this asking the questions, doing the work and and learning. And yeah, it's it's a slow process. And I and I found you know sort of in that in that process what we do. We collaborate with the spiders and the insects, exactly like you said. We look to nature, but we also have, I, I have a great network of colleagues and friends and, of course, my students that are, that who we work with. And, and that's, um, the, you know, the other side of this is that it has created for me connections with other humans, which is also nice. Um, through, through those, through silk, essentially spiders, silk, you know, this whole topic, um, you know, created lots of opportunities for me to work with really interesting people. I mentioned some of them earlier and, um, so it's not, um, it has sort of um, an effect that perhaps, you know, it's it's creating these connections. I always like to have that mm-hmm. um, that relationship in, in how we, you know, the threats connect things, right? They create a fabric mm-hmm. and it's not just the silk fabric or the, you know, the clothing or product, but it's it's actually the fabric between people as well. So the spiders have, I think it's one of these things where you think maybe, um, when you look back uh, maybe many decades from now <laughs> we'll look back and say yeah actually that the spider had the immediate effect that we thought we understand but actually had many other effects on our, on our lives and our careers that um as scientists as musicians as artists that um that, that go way beyond what we thought in the beginning is actually happening so I've, I've had that experience and in many different ways already and i think as time goes on we're going to see more of that so that's that's something that we and and I really think that you know we we live in a very fast paced world you know where yeah tweets and I don't know LinkedIn post Facebook Instagram you know snapshots of the live and and you know but I really respect um, people that, that when you when you make things like weaving or or you know paint or create some things you you have to spend the time mm-hmm. and you have to engage and and I. I always tell, you know, I was my kids that too, and, and 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 all my students, of course, but that you you have to you have to do that. I think as, as humans, otherwise we lose the connection with the world, and we become much too self centered and much too um, you know um, disconnected. Because when you, when you when you don't have the physical relationships or the actual experiences. You know, yeah, then then the the you know the the only relationships you have is with the screen, the computer screen or with a with the social media. Um, it becomes very shallow. So so I think what you described, I think is really, really interesting. And I think as an educational part of how we can maybe counterbalance this fast-paced world, you know, through these practices, I think it's extremely interesting. I think you're doing that, Marshall. I do you're doing the meditation, and all this I, I think that's really exciting and, and really important and of interest probably to a lot of people that aren't necessarily in your field, but that are kind of living in our world today and then try to find a counterbalance to that.
1: So I think as a as a kind of closing question, as we come to the end of our podcast, I wanted to kind of expand on some of the challenges and opportunities that you see in this space. I mean, you alluded to, to many different things. There's different sources of silk and the, the silks have different properties and uses. There's um, how we view the, the supply chain there's how we view our approach to material. And so I'm curious are there any other things when you think about silk your relationship to it and your practice um, that would be a challenge or an opportunity for the future?
2: I, mean, I, I can start with a couple of things. So one one thing that I think is really interesting is the language you know the um, we, we we touched upon this actually a, a little bit during the during the discussion that we we all kind of perceive different things. Right from that, either the process or looking at it or experiencing it, and and I think there are these, um, you know, hidden hidden messages. that we we kind of experience, like we said, you know, when we spend enough time, we can experience that. But um, you know, from a science perspective, this is in a world where we we don't really have the tools yet, quite quite yet for that. You know, we uh, one of the things we're trying to do is to use AI type methods, you know, artificial intelligence to come. Around that limitation of our own human brain, you know, essentially, right? because if you look at the human, human brain, we're kind of wired to think in a certain way. And scientists are trained to think outside the box. Artists are very good at that. But still, yeah, you know, we'll always come back to similar solutions. We're kind of attracted to our old past, you know, and, and we, so, so we're trying to use these synthetic approaches and kind of modeling these things. But yeah, I, I think one of the big frontiers is to find models and theories from a scientific perspective to capture these. You know messages that are hidden or you know maybe connected across different manifestations of, of, of things you know it could be like you, Michelle, you said that you feel it you begin to hear you know begin to taste so through your hands that's beautiful and but scientifically how do we describe that we have no idea you know most scientists would turn on that's not possible you can hear with your fingers but yeah i mean i think you you it's real, right? And and I think that so scientists are going to have to figure out how to model these things and how to understand them. So that's my one of the big goals we have is making these relationships tangible and um, yeah, using the modern techniques we have at disposal, which we didn't have a couple of years ago. So I'm very excited about these methods and um and you know trying to translating between these different manifestations that we experience. Thank you, Marcus.
3: Marcus, that's fascinating, and that's so exciting to hear that that's actually something uh, on the table for you guys to, you know, as you said, make these manifestations tangible or to try to define them and to describe them. That's super exciting.
2: Yeah, and and I better say that this is not. I mean, well, not not everybody in science. Yeah. yeah. So this is sort of my my vision exactly. But and I think my part of the part of the reason is that you know people do different things, of course, in their careers, and they. This is not I mean, this is a hard problem, and I think that it it is something that's hard because it doesn't follow the tradition of science necessarily, right? I mean, everything we try to do, hopefully it has an equation and formula as an and now we're talking about something that's very different. and i I'm, I am I love doing that, and that's what I do every day. And I'm very lucky to be able to do that actually. And I' was saying, you know, I have amazing students and I have uh, work at MIT or we can actually think about these things. We have the space and the time to do that. but um, yeah, I mean, in, in science, that's definitely, um, so not not everyone will, will will probably agree with that or maybe explore that or has the opportunity to do that. But yeah, I mean, I'm a big advocate of this. And I actually believe, you know, that even if you, even if we don't develop that model, that theory, um, it will help us make, become better scientists because we become more creative and think outside the box. I mean, that is, I always, we always try to teach our students that we, we've got to push the, you know, the envelope and, and really think. Outside of what we thought to be true, and that we we have lots of biases, and and that we 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 have you know that we're not aware of. And so, for example, we we think we're creative, but actually we're just reproducing the same thing over and over again. And, and so, so I'm I'm really interested in that. Of as a, as as I get older, you know, become more senior as scientists, you know, we are trying to explore um, kind of how um, how we can systematically push ourselves to become less uh, confined in our thinking. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I think, I think that's what I always learn from artists, you know, that's why I like working with them because they, they have a much more, um, a, a much more liberal connection to that process than, than scientists. You know, scientists are much more confined in their thinking. So I think we bring them together. Uh, I think you can create some really interesting stuff.
3: You know, I love that, and I I would honestly just build on what Marcus said. I think the opportunity is a learning one. Um, I often think about this. You know, I just had a baby. He's one year old now, and I often think about what am I going to teach him? What's important? And it really makes you think, you know, what are my own values? What's really important to me? Because that's essentially one of what I'm going to pass to him, no matter what I say. You know, it's what I do that I'm going to pass on. And I often wonder about what processes am I going to teach him? What will he learn how to make? How will he learn to use his hands? And why is that important, right? Like Catherine, you and I were together on our textiles degree. And for example, we had this, um, I think, even making degrees or art and design degrees are going through this Renaissance where it's like, why are we making so many things? Why is there so much stuff around? Why are we just producing, producing, producing? What is this for? And when I say the opportunity is a learning one, I think it's about using these processes to make relationships and to, you know, kind of connect with something, learn about it, reflect on it, produce content around that. It doesn't have to be 600 jugs or whatever. Right. Um, so I, I really do think that this is about learning, knowledge seeking, and what are these these investigative processes that we're using to do that. Um, for me, the slow, embodied, hands-on processes are incredibly important here. I feel like the opportunity is there. And honestly, you know, when I think about the last 10 years of kind of getting a sense of what's going on in the planet or getting a handle on our consumerism, all of that. I can't think of something more pertinent than actually learning how to make something with my own hands and realizing how long it takes or how many different processes it involves. So I feel like it's through that, that we can kind of get an appreciation of these, of these beautiful materials and ecosystems.
1: Powerful stuff. Yeah. Um... I want to thank you guys so much for sharing your insights on the material, but also your experiences working with it. I think this kind of discourse is something that on all sides um, is really important. It helps us It helps us grow. And I think it's really relevant to the times. It's been such a pleasure learning from you about the kind of properties of the silk from like an aesthetic of felt perspective and also just like the, the, the intricacies of the structures. Um, and I can't thank you enough again for joining today uh, on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: For more information about us, visit IOM3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at IOM3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.